overview. Time to podcast again. It's Philip de Kock, taking on one of the more ambitious podcast projects I've done up to now, and that is to try and unpack the famous I Have a Dream speech and try to distill what we can learn from it with respect to leadership communication. I have the honor to present to you the moral leader of our nation. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as the dread beacon light approached the millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. So what I've done there is to cut at a specific point and I just want to sketch the what was happening there. If you ever get the chance, go and look at the full video it's about 17 minutes but there you will see that he is walking with a group of people supporters to the Lincoln Memorial and they sing these gospel songs and then when he gets to the podium he walks in front when they get to the when he gets to the podium he starts talking and what he does is in that very short space of time he does three things. First of all, he creates context. He says we hear at this point, not only physically, but also psychologically. So already he tells him something about what is happening. The second thing is he creates the right climate. In other words, they sing these gospel songs. It is a solemn mood. And that brings me to the third point. Everything is in congruence. There's total congruency. They go to this Lincoln Memorial. It has a very significant uh, meaning in terms of history. It's a significant place. It creates the correct climate. They sing the gospel songs. 
they are solemn because it's very serious and all these things are incongruence. His whole style, the way he talks, the way he walks and that congruency is very, very important to create the meaning, the why are we here for the people who are there. Okay, so let's take this one step further. Let's listen to the next section. It came as the joy of daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. One hundred years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. One hundred years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. One hundred years later, the, the Negro is still languid in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize the shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to test a test. And the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall out. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as the citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check. A check which has come back not insufficient for. But we refuse to believe that the Bank of Justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great forms of opportunity of this nation. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. Okay, so what can we learn from this section of his speech? For me, the first thing is repetition. 100 years. Now, obviously, one needs to be very careful in using that so that you do not become boring. But emphasizing something uh, more than once, specifically key points, 
is very important for any audience, whether you communicate to them directly or in a communication program. It's those small, what we call Chinese drip messages that eventually sinks in. So that's the first thing. The second thing is cadence. Now, again, the point there is that one will not necessarily have that sort of standardized cadence. He's a very professional speaker. It is his style. The content of what he's communicating is very powerful. And therefore, given that solemn occasion, the cadence that he's using is appropriate for the situation. But varying your voice is very important. For example, I, I often see executives who just go and stand there, it's a very important speech, even a, a inspirational speech, and they just say, you know, going one, two, three, go down the sort of the list. That is not acceptable. Be committed to what you are saying. That is the main thing. The third thing is that he communicates the current reality. Obviously, as they see it, but still, he gives them the current reality. And then he relates it to the mandate. In other words, the mandate they have to do what they believe they need to do. He relates it to the Constitution in this case. And then the last and possibly the most important point and also the most powerful point is that he used analogy. There's always a lot of power in using analogy. For instance, a promissory note. We came to cash a check, but it came back insufficient funds. Now those things are very important and you can actually see how the crowd responds to that. So those are the points that I take from this section of the speech. Okay, so let's move on to the next section. Come on, so come to this hallowed spot to remind the America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing draws of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all the children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hope that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. 
There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro is granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice in the process of gaining our rightful place. We must not be guilty of wrong to deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is part of our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. And as we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the cities. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. We can never be satisfied as long as our children are stripped of their selfhood and robbed of their dignity by signs stating for whites only. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and the Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. 
Some of you have come fresh from Marysdale Sale. Some of you have come from areas where your present quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama, go back to South Carolina, go back to Georgia, go back to Louisiana, go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities. Knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed, let us not wallow in the valley of despair. Okay, so in this section what he's doing is he tells them what must change. But very important, he is also telling them how they should act. What is the desired behavior for this environment, this future that they want to create? And he specifically uh, refers to, for instance, things like to be disciplined, not to drink from the font of bitterness, things like that. So he creates a moral high ground for them. He even goes further and appeals to a higher mandate, uh, that of morality, in terms of their course. So in that sense, he also encourages the heart, as we say. And that is a very important point in the final section, that very famous section, the so-called I have a dream section, where he does what Napoleon refers to as being a dealer in hope. Napoleon said, leaders are dealers in hope. And this is exactly what he's doing in that final section. He gives them hope, he gives them the future, and the way that he emphasizes it is to use contrast. How it is, how it should be, how it is, how it should be. And I'm going to play out with that section and trust that we've all been able to listen and to learn something from this famous speech. Philip de Cox signing off. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners, will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. 
One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the dangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day. This will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of me. Sweet land of liberty of me, I say. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the crevices slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.